don't mind paying for legal services, but I, I can't pay for something that doesn't end up with any results. And I don't mm-hmm. have uh, a ton of money to throw at this. I'm single mom. The public expects and deserves to be protected from incompetent and predatory licensed legal professionals. Perhaps it is time to remind the Law Society of Ontario that they were created by the Legislative Assembly in 1797 to govern Ontario's lawyers and paralegals to protect the public. Their role is to ensure that the people of Ontario are served by the lawyers and paralegals who meet high standards of learning, competence and professional conduct. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And uh, before we get into the content of this episode, I'm going to uh, once again uh, put in a plea for you. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider going to iTunes and giving us a rating and maybe even a review. It would really help us out. Apparently, that's a great way to kind of bump us up the tracks and get us in front of new listeners. So we would love a little bit of support if you've got a couple of minutes to do that. Please. And another little bit of housekeeping. At the end of this episode, we'll have our regular other news segment. And this week, we have got, once again, regular listeners may remember, last season, at the end of the season, we had several episodes with guest other news correspondent Jordan Furlong. He's wonderful. He's a legal industry analyst and consultant, and people may be familiar with his wonderful blog, Law 21. So go check him out there. And I would especially encourage you to stay tuned to the end today for In Other News, because in fact, Jordan is presenting some hot off the presses news, which he has devoted the entire In Other News to. And I think anyone who's interested in the future of access to justice, as I know many listeners are, well worth waiting to hear that story from Jordan. And today in the conversation, I am not appearing because this was a conversation that was recorded between a student who took my class called Clients last semester at the University of Windsor Law School. And I always give my students the opportunity to create something different. They don't have to do a research paper. And several of them this year recorded audio. And this is a conversation between the student and her mom. And she had represented herself in the divorce um, from her then husband over 10 years ago. So some considerable time earlier. But what my student was really interested in hearing, having spent some time in the client's class, learning a little bit more about self-represented litigants, was to actually have a conversation with her mom about how this came about, what the experience was like for her, what happened. So I think that that was a tremendous gift that they both gave us uh, and one another to talk about an experience that obviously is a memory that will never go away, not 10, 20 or far more years later. And what we have for you today, and we're not using names, we're protecting their privacy, is that conversation. And what you'll hear mostly is the discussion by um, the mom 
who represented herself having an, originally begun with a lawyer and her discussion of what happened to her and her disappointments in the legal services that she received and particularly in what those legal services cost her. And when I listened to this, I was blown away by what a compelling account, I think that's the best word for me to use, this was of an utterly miserable time um, caused by lack of access to competent legal representation. And also lack of access to information about what her money was being expended on by two different lawyers who between them ended up charging her close to $50,000 and her struggle to try to get information about what that money was actually used for. So that's the substance of the conversation that we're playing you today. And after that, we have asked two people to comment, to reflect on what they've heard there. The first is uh, a very old friend and colleague of mine, Nancy Cameron, QC from British Columbia, where Nancy is probably the most highly respected family lawyer in the province and very well known for all of her work in collaborative practice, but also more recently um, helping people who are otherwise self-represented um, with their cases. So Nancy's going to give us her analysis and her reflection on what she just heard. And we're also going to hear from Jana Sarasivic, who is also a former family self-represented litigant and is currently a member of our advisory board at NSLP. Um, Jana's wonderful. She's mm -hmm. just, I mean, not only is she so supportive of our organization um, and so thoughtful in her approach to all of the issues that we bring to her and all of the issues facing self-represented litigants, but she has assisted uh, countless other self-reps over the years um, in, you know, offering support in any way that she can to them in their cases. Uh, one great example is often accompanying them to court as a McKenzie friend or a support person, which we write about on their website if you want to check out that information on McKenzie friends. But Jean is wonderful and has a, also has a really great perspective on um, this story that we're about to present to you. So first you'll hear, as Julie was talking about, the story uh, her student's mom talking about her experience um, in family court and with legal representation that she had and as a self-rep. And then you'll hear from Nancy and Jana. Can you give us a bit of a background on the reason that you were seeking a family lawyer? Yeah, so initially I um, retained a lawyer to deal with custody, uh, child support, and divorce. And it was a referral from a family friend of a lawyer in Kitchener-Waterloo. He initially asked for a $10,000 retainer, which I paid. We attended one day in court to um, deal with the custody matter, which was a very simple matter. And after that, um, he asked for another 5000 six months later. I gave that to him. And then from, from there, he basically disappeared. I was unable to reach him. He was unable to respond to any of my emails. Um, during the course of this time, 
there were two properties that a court order went, was placed the day of court that we went to establish custody that the properties not to be sold. But my lawyer didn't do the background work to put a lien on the properties, so my ex-husband was able to sell one of the valuable properties. Uh, I tried to ask him about this and why he hadn't done that, that work. He didn't respond. He demanded another $5,000. This was about the two-year mark into dealing with him. Still at this point, no child support had been um, satisfied, no the, the rest of the divorce and division of assets, nothing had taken place and no court date. Uh, he said he needed another 5000 and I gave that to him and he told me uh, the court date, which was in October. I didn't hear from him a couple of weeks before the court date, so I just assumed we would meet at his office and, and walk over to the courthouse together. When I arrived at his office that morning, he was leaving and I caught him on his way out and I said, we have court today. And he said, no, we don't. And I said, you sent me an email saying that we did uh, before you asked for the extra 5000 and he said, no, we don't, and left. At this point, I was very concerned of what was going on and felt that I might not even have representation. Uh, so I went back into his office and told the secretary that I was going to wait until he returned to sit down and meet with him. So I did that. He did finally return. Uh, and I said to, I asked him, you know, what, what is going on? What's happening with my file? You know, where did the $20,000 go? And he looked at me and said, when did you realize I was no longer your lawyer? And I was shocked and I just thought, oh my gosh, like I've just given this guy $20,000 and the only legal uh, services I've received is custody, which custody of the two children was really never uh, a, a big fight. I'm their mother, they were living with me full time already in another city. Uh, so that was never probably going to be something that I would have lost. I probably could have represented myself in court on that matter alone uh, because it, there was no there was no real issue that I would have lost custody. So then I left the office and I thought, oh my gosh, like I've basically been taken advantage of and I contacted the Law Society. I filed a formal complaint. They did sanction him but they don't offer any financial restitution to clients that are taken advantage of by lawyers who are acting in an unprofessional manner. I was contacted by BDO, which is bankruptcy um, solvency company, uh, because I was listed technically in the books for that lawyer as still having a credit with him uh, in his paperwork. Uh, and apparently he had set up a, um, a some type of a scheme with his with his ex-wife where they had legally separated 20 years ago and he'd racked up two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in debt and had declared bankruptcy and uh, they told me that there was no real chance of me ever receiving uh, money if it would be it would be pennies on the dollar just because of the amount that he owed he even owed for the furniture in his office. Uh, so at that point I thought, okay, well I need to go find a different lawyer. So I did a bunch of research this time thinking I'm gonna look online um, and find a reputable lawyer. I met with another lawyer uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo. I explained the situation of what had happened and he's like, oh, that's terrible. 
And I said to him, I really just can't afford to have this happen again. I said, I don't mind paying for legal services, but I, I can't pay for something that doesn't end up with any results. And I don't mm-hmm. have uh, a ton of money to throw at this. I'm single mom. There's currently no child support. There's currently no division of assets. And the other, the other side was, had no interest in, in going to court uh, and had, my ex had changed his lawyer several times and, and obviously it was in his best interest to avoid uh, coming to court to deal with this because any court date would, for him would mean he'd have to have child, pay child support and have division of assets. Um, so this lawyer asked for a $5,000 retainer, which I thought was a little bit more reasonable uh, and he said, you know, because it's a large file, there was a prenup, there's a constructive trust issue. He said, there's, it's, it's complicated. Um, and I said, okay. And he's like, yeah, but I think, you know, this is a case that we can win. You have a good point. You're definitely owed child support. There should be a division of assets here. He has sold the property against the court order. That is an issue that we, we need to address. Um, so going forward, then he we he he was able to he asked for another five thousand, and I actually was able to go to court and have a case conference. Um, this was the settlement conference, yeah, right? Okay, yeah, case conference just to go go through not a settlement conference, but it, they called it a case conference where you meet with the judge and um, the other party and their lawyer and myself and the lawyer. Uh, and after that case conference, the my ex fired his lawyer, so we were unable to to reach or, or reach him for then the next year. In the meantime, my lawyer continued to request more more money till we were at the point that I had paid him twenty five thousand. I uh, contacted the law society just to find out kind of what my rights were at this stage because I was starting to feel that this lawyer wasn't returning calls. It was six months in between hearing from him. So this had been gone. Now my legal battle had been gone on for five or six years with still no child support, still no division of assets and still no divorce. Uh, and, you know, I didn't want to just fire him and start with a new lawyer and spend another 20, 20,000. So the law society said that I could request a review of the bill and I wouldn't be charged for that time with him, and I could go over and see what exactly I had been billed for, and figure, you know, if you know if that was if his bills were reasonable. So I requested that he initially denied it, denied that request, and I said I've spoken with the law society, and I have a right to go over the bill with you, and I need to understand where the twenty five thousand is gone, and you're still asking for another three thousand now currently to bring the account uh, current. And I don't understand what's been done for that. So on reviewing the bill, it it was over several years, and it was a constant review of file. Then he, then two months later, he'd review my file again at three hundred twenty-five dollars an hour for sometimes two hours, sometimes three hours, but then no other work was done towards my file. And I said to him, I said I just didn't understand the purpose of why he kept reviewing my file to look over it and look over it and was just bailing me. And it just seemed like he, that that's all he did was just go around his office, grab different people's files, review them. And then, um, and I said that, that, uh, that I, I didn't think that that was fair. He disagreed. Um, 
And then, so at that point, I just told him, you know, I thought, well, there's no point in calling the law society again, because last time I did that, even though the, my previous lawyer was uh, under investigation for bankruptcy fraud and was clearly, uh, you know, way out of line with how he handled my account, there was nothing that the law society was going to do for me. Their job was just to um, make sure that lawyers were, I guess, behaving professionally and, and sanction them. So there, there would be no recourse. So I just didn't bother to contact the law society. And then this second lawyer uh, filed a motion to, that I owed him the money and took me to court for the $3,000 remaining, which I was shocked considering um, that, that the 25000 had he'd accomplished nothing with that. And his response was, I'm not a results-based lawyer. I bill for my time. So uh, for that court case, uh, I rep- decided I would represent myself and go to the kitchen Waterloo Court. And I thought maybe if the judge would hear me and I could explain, you know, what had happened and that, you know, I, I had received, you know, no results, but that's not the point, but that the constant reviewing of my bill and reviewing of my bill. And when I had a chance to speak in court, the lawyer and the judge were speaking uh, and, and really having quite a long conversation before the judge turned to me and said, asked if there's anything I had to say for myself was his words. And I said, your honor, I've requested a review of the bill with this lawyer and I said I've gone over it and over a course of three years he continually reviewed my file reviewed my file but then there was no other work done after that and there's you know over 15,000 of this bill is review of the file Uh, and the file hasn't changed because there hadn't been additional court dates there hadn't been additional um, correspondence because especially for the year and a half that my ex was unrepresented and had no lawyer and was refusing to communicate with my lawyer. Uh, so there was no part, like, I don't know why he kept doing that. I, I said, I think that's fraudulent. And that was the wrong choice of words because the judge just said, ma'am, you can't come in the court and accuse a member of, um, I don't know if he said the bar or a member of uh, a fraud, uh, un, unbased uh, fraud claims that, you know, and basically reprimanding me for even speaking or uh, so. And then that was it. Uh, I was ordered to pay him the $3,000. And I know that your wages were actually garnished yeah. when you refused. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought, you know what, like, and he had my wages garnished. He went to the trouble of doing that. And uh, and I said to him in my last meeting with him in his office, I said, why did you do this? I said, I told you, you know, you've seen my income is 65000 I'm raising these two kids on my own. Like, I didn't have 25000 If He's like, the case is just too complicated. Your ex is not willing to keep a lawyer. We're dealing with lawyers who are, who are in Kingston versus then there's one in Kitchener. He's like, it's just too complicated. And I just got the impression that he just wanted a simple, easy case and that this was complicated. He was willing to do it, but at, to the tune of a hundred grand or 150,000. So my experience with lawyers and in talking with other um, friends who've been divorced is that basically if you don't have the big bucks and your divorce is going to be contested and it's not going to be a, where the parties agree, it's, it's not something affordable. It's it's not affordable to get divorced. I'm still currently married. I still still currently have no division of assets. 
and I still currently am, am owed tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars of backdated child support, which I probably will never receive. It seems to me that she followed the recommended path of hiring legal counsel, paid one year's worth of her salary, yet had little to show for it. Was I surprised? No. But I was taken aback at the brazen, unprofessional conduct displayed by these two legal professionals. Both lawyers appropriated her limited financial resources without providing anything of value in return. Sadly, this is not as uncommon as people may think. The rapid increase of self-represented litigants in our family courts is a clear indicator of the public's mistrust and dissatisfaction with overpriced and underperforming legal professionals. I had to become a reluctant self-represented litigant as a direct result of poor customer service and high legal fees. In the first year of my family law matter, I spent $45,000 on legal bills with only a temporary custody agreement to show for it. I regularly questioned the monthly fees of two dollars to $3,000, even though little was being done on my file. I expected to be kept informed as to what legal steps needed to be taken to obtain child support, division of assets, and a divorce. At every meeting, I requested estimated timelines, costs, and expected outcomes. There were many promises, followed by excuses for the lack of progress. But the bills kept coming. I felt disempowered when my attempts to contain legal costs were ignored. The Law Society of Ontario was unable to provide guidance or resources to stop what I considered to be blatant financial abuse by my then legal counsel. So I took matters into my own hands and began to search for a legal professional who could assess the accuracy of these legal bills. At that time, I found only three lawyers that were known to specialize in this area because, you guessed it, their colleagues frowned on being audited. I chose a seasoned lawyer with a strong moral fortitude who, upon a thorough review of my legal bills, filed a civil suit at the Superior Court of Justice in Toronto. I was awarded a full refund of my legal fees. Unfortunately, when the sheriff tried to collect the money, the affected lawyer declared bankruptcy to avoid payment. In response, I filed a formal complaint with the Ontario Law Society which resulted in that same lawyer being barred from practicing family law. Next on my list was an application to the Compensation Fund through the Law Society of Ontario, from which I recovered a large portion of those legal fees. As a self-represented litigant, I learned to ask lots of questions and relentlessly search for publicly available legal information. Duty counsel and the Family Legal Information Centre at the courthouse provided ongoing support and valuable information to me over the years. The public expects and deserves to be protected from incompetent and predatory licensed legal professionals. Perhaps it is time to remind the Law Society of Ontario that they were created by the Legislative Assembly in 1797 to govern Ontario's lawyers and paralegals to protect the public. Their role is to ensure that the people of Ontario are served by the lawyers and paralegals who meet high standards of learning, competence, and professional conduct. One of the defining characteristics of the rule of law is that all people are treated equally before and under the law. We may be flawed in harboring that view as our justice system has always favored those who can afford to participate. 
Separation and divorce has been shoehorned into an existing adversarial system. The current system is based on the premise that two equally skilled advocates presenting evidence and arguing in front of a neutral judge can come up with the right outcome. I'm not going to use this opportunity to deconstruct that premise, although I have serious concerns about it, given what we know about how our brains work and how we make decisions. But what is obvious is that the system is inaccessible to many because it has been designed with lawyers as the operative players, putting it out of reach for many people who are then forced to self-represent. Self-representation comes with a diverse set of its own problems. The rules are complex and many of the things we think of as rules are norms, so they are not written down. This creates what is at least four classes of participants in the system. Those who can afford to hire lawyers who are trained in both the written and unwritten rules. Self-represented litigants who the system was never designed to serve. Those who get some legal aid subsidy, rare in family cases outside of child protection. So begin with representation, but then when they have exhausted legal aid, join either the self-represented population or further class. Those who have a legal problem but never seek a remedy or give up seeking a remedy. This can be because they see the system as inaccessible or not responsive to their needs. It can be because they have exhausted themselves emotionally and or financially. The articulate woman in the preceding interview started out in the first class using what resources she had to attempt to get the relief she deserves under the law, but then ended up in this fourth class of people. She has never received what she is legally entitled to. In fact, after a decade and tens of thousands of dollars, she has not even been able to be, obtain a divorce or child support. Clearly, when an institution can't serve the population and creates different classes of citizens, the population will lose faith in the institution. This plunges us into institutional crisis, which is where we sit today with our court systems. I feel like I would be remiss if I did not start with pointing that out. But another thing I would like to speak to is this woman's experience when she exercised her legal right to challenge her lawyer's bill. Now, if I took my car in to be repaired and was handed a bill for thousands of dollars for, quote, looking at and considering the problem, end quote, and yet the mechanic did nothing to repair my car, guess what? I wouldn't pay that bill. If I had prepaid the bill and wanted my money back, but I was told the tribunal that handled those disputes was made up of mechanics or former mechanics, and the rules for this tribunal were in the mechanics handbook, I would start to be concerned that maybe I wasn't going to get a fair hearing. Until I listened to this interview, I hadn't spent much time thinking about the process for assessing lawyers' bills. I know that litigation is very stressful for those going through the litigation. As someone said to me recently, I felt like I was being attacked and I always had to defend myself. In many kinds of litigation, we even call one person the defendant. Going back to the car repair analogy, I would probably think about hiring a mechanic, someone who knew the rules and the players to represent me in this hearing, and I would probably run into this problem. The mechanics I spoke to either knew the mechanic I had the dispute with or didn't want to get involved. Listening to this interview was the first time I have thought about the fee assessment process through a trauma-informed lens. We can't ignore the fact that this woman has probably gone through layers of trauma. Trying to resolve matters with a man who has used one of the oldest tricks in the litigation handbook, litigation fatigue. Draw things out as much as possible, costing the other side money, and hoping they will finally just go away so you don't have to pay up. But that would just be one layer of trauma. 
She has hired a lawyer, not once, but twice. Spent the money she has, expecting for that lawyer to do what she feels unable to do. Present her side, get a settlement, and get a divorce. Both of her experiences with lawyers, which she is so articulate about, would add to her trauma, a trauma that has both an emotional and a financial component. But then the final assault on her, and I don't use that word easily, is to put her into a system that puts her up against the very person she initially trusted, the person who has taken her money and done virtually nothing for her. But she doesn't have the handbook, is not a member of the fraternity, and something else I have seen myself in court when someone is self-represented, is made to feel as though the person making the decision is doing her a favor, letting her speak at all. And then she makes the fatal mistake of using a word that, for her, describes exactly how she was feeling, the victim of a fraud. She doesn't know that in lawyer speak, that is a forbidden word unless she can prove the elements of the crime. When I spoke of unwritten rules earlier, she had just violated one of the unwritten rules she would never have been able to discover, despite how much she prepared. The aftermath of the repeated traumas is no surprise. She has no faith in the institution itself, and she has walked away from her rights, and her children have never been financially supported in the way they are entitled to be supported. Hello, I'm Jordan Furlong, Principal of Law 21, and I am your temporary host of In Other News. This segment of the podcast is intended to review current events related to access to justice. And I don't think we can get any more current than a development that has just been announced earlier today by the Law Society of Ontario, the body that governs lawyers and regulates legal services in this province. The Law Society's Technology Task Force has released a report calling for the establishment of a regulatory sandbox for innovative technological legal services. The report includes a motion to be brought before convocation, that's the board of directors of the Law Society, essentially, later this month for approval of the sandbox for a five-year pilot program period. Now, some of you listening to this might be going, legal services sandbox in Ontario? Awesome! That's fantastic news! And some of you might be going, uh, what are we talking about here? What's this about? So let me address the second group before I go on to the first. A sandbox is a relatively recent innovation in the regulatory world. We started seeing them in the financial services sector some years back, and we've now begun to see them start to emerge in professional regulation. A regulatory sandbox is essentially a safe space for innovation. Think of it as a closely monitored laboratory where experiments can be carried out, except that these experiments are new types of services that are prohibited by current regulations, but that look like they could be beneficial to the public. The regulator has decided it wants to give these experimental services a try, but it doesn't want to immediately authorize a service that doesn't meet the established criteria for authorization, sight unseen, So it creates a sandbox where the service can be tried out under close supervision to see whether the benefits it provides outweigh the risks or harms it creates. Now, as you know, there are plenty of restrictions in place that reduce the number of people and companies that can provide legal services in all jurisdictions. 
In Ontario, these restrictions primarily revolve around the people who can offer legal services or own entities that offer such services, namely licensed lawyers and paralegals. What the Law Society's Technology Task Force observes, however, correctly, is that people are no longer the only entities providing legal services these days. Technology has advanced, especially over the last few years, at such an astonishing rate that software now routinely carries out tasks that, until recently, only humans could perform. Some of this technology is used by lawyers and paralegals to serve their clients, but a growing amount of this technology is being used by consumers and members of the public directly. The task force report, in fact, counted no fewer than 88 direct-to-the-public legal tech tools operating in Canada as of 2019. Now, what should a regulator do about these tools? A reactive, regressive response might be to say, shut them all down. They violate our rules. Spend whatever's required to put them out of business. Okay, but there are three problems with that. One, prosecuting 88 technology companies for the unauthorized practice of law would be an incredibly expensive and time-consuming undertaking. It would consume most of a regulator's resources and would invite litigation challenging the effort, would generate massive costs to the law society and to the licensees who fund it. Two, the simple fact that a service is not delivered by a licensed lawyer or paralegal, that it's not authorized, does not automatically mean the service is disreputable or dangerous. We're looking to prevent actual harm to the public, not to just preserve categorical distinctions for the sake of preserving them. And three, and most importantly, many consumers are actively helped by these legal technology tools. They use them to get needed information and help them move closer towards a remedy for their problem, especially if they cannot or are never going to hire a lawyer or paralegal to help them. And that's a really important point for lawyers especially to remember. Legal tech tools that operate in or emerge from a sandbox are not going to take work from lawyers or paralegals. They're going to address situations that will never cross a lawyer's or a paralegal's desk. These are essentially two parallel legal markets. Lawyers and paralegals serve the part of the market that wants to and can afford to hire them. The other part of the market, which as we know contains millions of people and has countless unaddressed problems, has nothing at all to help it. These technology tools want to change that. A sandbox will help them to do it. So, that's what a regulatory sandbox is, and that's what the Law Society's Technology Task Force is recommending be created. The sandbox would operate for five years. It would be open to, and I'm quoting here, any person or entity that is prevented by current regulations from operating an innovative technological legal services tool or program. There would be an application process whereby an entity that wants to enter the sandbox would have to satisfy certain entry requirements around viability, uh, consumer benefit, insurance, and quality assurance, among others. If it's accepted, the entity would begin to deliver its services to Ontario consumers in this safe space, overseen by the Law Society, 
which would monitor the entity to ensure it's meeting standards and protocols, collecting data and feedback about the entry services and client experiences, and watching closely for any signs of abuse or bad faith. In general, the sandbox period would be expected to be about two years in length, although I imagine that entities that rapidly and clearly deliver strong benefits with little or no evidence of harm could be approved faster than that. At the end of this trial run, the entity may be approved, with or without conditions, to continue operating freely in the open market, or if necessary, law society bylaws could be amended to allow for this exception to the formal rules to continue. This is a very brief overview of this proposal, and many more details can be found in the task force's report, which, as I say, has just been released this morning and should be available shortly at the Law Society website. But I just want to say four quick things here at the end about this development before I wrap up. Number one, I think this is a fantastic idea. A regulatory sandbox is the ideal middle way between completely banning any unauthorized legal service and opening the floodgates and allowing anyone to offer legal services unchecked and unsupervised. It's a sensible middle way compromise. We're Canadians. We love sensible compromise. Number two, Ontario would not be going out on its own here. The state of Utah opened its own regulatory sandbox last year and has already received multiple applications. British Columbia's Law Society has also approved a recommendation to launch a sandbox and they've received many expressions of interest already too. The financial services sector has been doing this kind of thing for years. There is precedent for this approach. Number three, Ontario is in an ideal position to launch a technology-based innovation sandbox because Ontario, and Toronto in particular, is the headquarters for a large and rapidly growing Canadian legal tech industry, one that has drawn notice and praise from all over the world. There is almost literally no better place to try this out. And number four, the sandbox is a great idea because it relies upon one of lawyers' most important values, collecting evidence. Lawyers are all about determining the facts, gathering relevant information, and using it to assess a situation. We have no data, or hardly any data, about legal services provided through technology or by unauthorized providers. We don't know whether it harms or whether it helps or by how much. The sandbox addresses that. It gives the law society what every lawyer needs evidence with which to make a reasoned and justifiable decision. So put me down as a supporter of this idea and a cheerleader for when the motion to approve the sandbox comes before the Law Society's governors later this month. I hope you have a chance to check out the task force's report and to join me in supporting and cheering on its acceptance and a hopeful implementation. I'm Jordan Furlong and that was In Other News.